just when you thought it was safe to put your toes back into the waters of podcasting. It's Pottywood Season 2. Hey everybody and welcome back to season two of Pottywood. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always is... I'm the other guy, Andrew Roger Carson, if you need the name. Yeah, you're the tall one. Yes, you're the round one. Yes. It's like it's like Laurel and Hardy if like Stan Laurel was about eight foot two. Yes, that's about as, as good as an arch as we're going to get, really. So anyway, here we are in season two. Wow, can you believe we got this far? It felt like only last week that we were recording the end of season one. I know. In reality, it was two weeks ago. I know. God, time really does fly, doesn't it? I got older. It's weird. Yes, you did, uh, because you had a birthday. I know. And back then, Disney still had its Marvel release schedule in check. (laughs) Can you believe that? Wow, what a coincidence. Right after DC Fandom finished with all of its trailers for its upcoming DC slate, Marvel mysteriously moves all of its titles back. I know. Wow. Who would have saw that coming? Well, if you're going to be bringing up DC, I I know that it's now old news, but this is the first time I get to have a quick chat about it. The Batman trailer. Now, I still have a couple of issues with it. Um, Robert Pattinson spent ages trying to prove himself as an actual actor as opposed to just the guy who was in Twilight and he's doing himself no favours wearing emo makeup and having long fringe he just looks like an older version of Edward Cullen I don't like the Batmobile and I think the makeup job that's on Colin Farrell well it disguises him perfectly makes him look like the David Williams character Omar Barbar from Come Fly With Me Hopefully the actual film itself will be good. I am holding out a lot of hope that it will be good, especially the whole angle with the Riddler being kind of like a jigsaw kind of figure, which would then fit in if anyone's played the Arkham games. That's exactly what he is in that. So I'm holding out hope, but, you know, it's just these little things I'm not holding out for. Well, I actually really like the look of the Batman. I'm really looking forward to it. I'll be there in March seeing it. The shameful thing is the trailer is actually that good that I actually want to see it now. Mm. Um, it's like uh, Dune, um, it just recently came out, and uh, no one wanted to go and see it with me. So I guess I ended up going and seeing it on my own. Sorry. But, you know, it's one of those things. But yes, as you mentioned, Marvel, Disney, have pushed their entire slate back by kind of one movie, which is interesting because um, one of DC's big movies now has a Marvel film come out the week after. And it kind of plays that for every single thing now. Instead of it being a week before, it's now a week after. Yeah. yeah. So Marvel swiftly puts the ball back in their court. And speaking of putting the ball back in their court, let's have a talk about what's in the box from, well, I guess, last season. Yes, the cross-seasonal what's in the box. Yes. Uh, and this was the 2007 documentary film which was the first for Pottywood, uh, in the hands of the gods. Now, 
before we before I actually delve into this, I do want to actually point out one thing, and I don't know if you were doing it on on purpose or if it was just sheer coincidence. But pretty much the last four movies were all released in two thousand and seven. That is quite weird, actually. The last four. Yeah, because you had uh, Rogue, which was 2007, Into the Wild, which was 2007, then you had uh, Gone Baby Gone, which was released in 2007, and then In the Hands of the Gods, which was 2007. Yeah, but to be honest, I think this more proves that you've not seen anything in 2007, because we did have stuff like Aladdin, that was in between all of them, which was 1992. It is a strange coincidence. Yes. Well, anyway, uh, this is the story of uh, five guys, Sammy, Jeremy, Paul, Danny and Mikey, who are British freestyle footballers, which means that they do various tricks with the ball, you know, onto the shoulders, keepy-uppy. And it makes more sense if you're a fan of, and I can't believe I'm actually going to use this word, Soccer. soccer. Yes. As opposed to American football, which isn't football. And it's their story of them busking their way across the U.S., starting in New York City and then going all the way down to get to Buenos Aires in Argentina to meet their hero, Diego Maradona. Now, if you are any kind of a football fan, which I am not, then you'll know that the title of the movie refers to the hand of God, the infamous hand of God that occurred at the end of England's game against Argentina in the 1986 World Cup, which resulted in England leaving the competition, and it was seen by many as a handball by Diego Maradona himself that uh, that secured the Argentine win. It's still a bone of contention for football fans, but like I say, I, I don't really care. Now, if you are a footballist then you're going to get something out of this film. If you're not a footballist, you're still actually going to get something out of this film because it could be considered almost a companion piece to Into the Wild in some respects because you've got a group of people who are going on this journey, this monumental journey, and they have very little preparation behind them. They have kind of like an idea as to what it is that they want to do and they're going out and doing it, but without really anything to back them up going in. Now, these aren't wealthy people. These uh, Two of them, in fact, were living on the streets Very true. in the UK when this, uh, when this movie was made. So, you know, we're not talking about people that had access to a lot of money. And they're going out there, and there's many, many scenes of them busking on the streets of New York. Um, there's a couple of them when they're in Dallas, where they're doing tricks in front of a stadium full of uh, football fans at half time, and so on and so forth. And the whole idea is about the conflicting personalities between them as they're trying to embark on this long journey. And there is a lot of conflicting personalities, traits between them. To the point that at sometimes it does feel a little bit staged. Uh, I had a point on that, but thanks for bringing it up. There are times where it feels like the artificialness that you get in things like, um, I don't know, Real Housewives of insert name here, because there's about 5,000 of those programs. The, the end felt very staged, where they just happened to see the events unfolding on a TV. Mm-hmm. Very yeah. reality TV. Uh, yeah. I seriously doubt that would have happened in real life i think that was just added on for 
dramatic effect. Yeah, because what happens partway through the movie is the group ends up splitting. Two of them end up going down through Mexico to no, Guatemala, and then they end up going over to Rio de Janeiro, and then from Rio they go down to Argentina, where the other three, they go back up north to LA, and then they split again. And one of the uh, one of the guys, Mikey, he ends up then coming down to to Britain's Got Talent. <laughs> to Britain's Got Talent. Actually, most he of did. these most of these guys ended up going on Britain's Got Talent at the end. Exactly. Yes. Uh, but he ended up joining the the two Sammy and uh, and and Paul who ended up going down to to Argentina to actually meet him. Now those three did meet up with the uh, the Argentinian Football. footballer who definitely isn't a cheat. And uh, and they actually got to meet him. They got photographs with him. He signed the shirt and everything. Uh, and the last two, like you say, at the very end of the movie, these two have been busking away for themselves in L.A. They eventually get to Argentina and they see them on a TV screen. One of them just smiles. And you're thinking, no. Staged. Yeah, you'd be there yeah. going, oh, for fuck's sake, I can't believe this. Been through all this trouble and we missed it. Ah, you'd be stomping about the place. But the thing is, I always think about Especially when Diego Maradona does make his appearance, because mm-hmm. they've been on TV and stuff talking about their plate that they've travelled all this way, and it's like Madonna, Madonna, yeah, Maradona. My <laughs> she God, she's changed. Yeah, she, she would have been easier to get hold of, but uh, Maradona, he was purely doing that for a bit of publicity before he just decided to get in his car and bugger off. I think so it, as well. It, yeah, it was like, oh yeah, 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 I'll get this, get lost, English. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, there was parts of it where it's like, obviously the the Maradona bit was a nice bit of publicity for him, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do feel it was staged in some parts. That end bit, obviously, especially where they see them on the TV. Um, following that, the, the last t- the last time I saw them was on, I think, a couple of series of Britain's Got Talent. I think they were on there doing their trick stuff. But this movie does have one thing going for it. Which is what? It is currently... The widest released documentary ever in the United Kingdom. Mm. Still to this day. Which is weird when you think, I've, I haven't even heard of this. I don't remember seeing any publicity for this, even back in the day. So, yeah, wow. Yeah, I, I, I remember it fully when it did come out, because uh, it was released through Lionsgate here in the UK. And uh, obviously, being in the UK, anything football comes out, people are going to watch it. That's why we've got movies like Escape to Victory or Green Street Hooligans or every kind of football hooligan movie that comes out that no one really gives a shit about, but they still churn them out. Yeah, it's like just full of cockney geezers going, do what, cool boy? Yeah, do him! Yeah! Not him! You don't even need to write that script. No. What you need to do is just take a tape recorder into a pub. <laughs> You've got a movie. It, it is. I'm sorry. They must do the same thing for EastEnders. Yeah, I know there's some people out there who are, pro- who are listening who have probably directed or starred in one of these movies, but c- come on, it's it paid your rent, all right? I mean, mm. it, they're not great movies. They, they never have been a great movie uh, to do with football, hooliganism. Um, they've been some well-made, but they've never been great. No, I think the first Green Street was interesting because you had uh, Frodo Baggins in it. That was it. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was Green Street hooligans. It was him and was it Charlie Hunnam? I think I, so. I, th- I think Charlie Hunnam got his thing from that. Yeah, it's it's football in it. Yeah. I, the only I was only interested in that because oh, it's Frodo being a yobbo. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, in the hands of the gods. Other than that, yeah. did you enjoy the movie? 
I did actually. Like I say, there's a few bits which I am questioning the actual sincerity or the veracity of, but I really did enjoy it. In terms of an actual movie, there's some beautiful shots and there's some really, really nice moments uh, between the two, particularly the end. And it does get a little bit sappy, but, you know, particularly the end. And it was kind of nice looking at all these various places going throughout the US and just thinking, oh, I've been there, I've been there. Oh, Grauman's Chinese Theatre. I've been there. Don't go near Grauman's Chinese Theatre because Hollywood Boulevard's a dive. Um, but no, I, I I enjoyed it. And I think because the fact I, I'm not a football fan, I was able to get some enjoyment out of it. It speaks volumes about uh, about the, it being an enjoyable movie as opposed to an enjoyable football movie. Football just happens to be the device which gets them to where they, it is that they need to go. Very true. Well... Uh, that's as good as we're going to get out of In the Hands of the Gods. I guess it's just time to go over to some anniversaries. We watch them again all of the time. Oh, we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. And I'm not doing any cowboy-related stuff this season because I was running out last season, so, yeah. You could have said Dallas Cowboys, because that's what real football is, after all. So, let's talk about the anniversaries for this week. Can you believe, Steve? Well, I don't know there, Andy. You tell me. (laughs) Let's try that again, because that was super annoying. (laughs) When you're finished, I'll start again. Can you believe, Steve? What, Andy? 25 years ago this week, it was the release of a goofy movie. Yeah. <laughs> yes. What an intricate uh, history this movie has. For one, it's directed by Kevin Lima, who actually went on to direct movies like Enchanted and Tarzan for Disney. Uh, and this was basically, it's basically Goof Troop as a movie. Everyone was watching this film around about this time, apart from me. It's one of those movies that I always ended up missing when it was on the random times that it was on TV. It, the video was always out at the video store, so I never got a chance to rent it. I just, I've, I've, I've got no connection with this movie whatsoever. Well, domestically, it didn't do so well, uh, even in the States, because uh, this was greenlit by the recently fired Jeffrey Katzenberg. Well, not recently. He was fired mm-hmm. back then by Eisner, Michael Eisner. Uh, so this movie was kind of deemed more of a contractual obligation, more than anything, for it to be released. But over the years, it has this cult following, mainly oh. from millennials, who were young enough to enjoy it back then. And that's kind of made it a lot more visible today than it was back in 1996 when it comes out. And for those of you who haven't seen it, this is the movie where Goofy is a single father. who's trying to bond with his son on a road trip. Garge. <laughs> yes. Which is, uh, it was kind of mirrored by uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, actually did the same with his estranged daughter. They took a road trip and actually bonded over it. So it's it's kind of a special movie for Katzenberg, I guess. But uh, uh, the bit of research I found out about this film was it was originally supposed to be released in 1994. Okay, so what the delay? Well, the delay was actually due to the monitor they were using to capture the animation having one singular dead pixel. That one little dead pixel resulted in them recapturing three quarters of the entire movie, again, with a non-defective monitor. 
Okay, I'm not entirely sure how that would work because wasn't it cell shaded at the time? I, I don't know how how having like a dead pixel on the monitor would affect the, the cell shading. Well, it obviously screwed it up enough for him to go back and recapture three quarters of the entire movie. Otherwise, yeah. that is a dynamite excuse. Yeah. We'll have to ask Jay. He might fill us in on why. I'm sure we could ask him about the singular dead pixel. Mm-hmm. Goofy movie? Yeah, it's, it's not really my jam, really. I have seen it. Um, for me, it's just a film. You know, it's it's there. It doesn't connect with me on any special level. I only bring it up because it is its anniversary this week, where it actually did get to number one in the UK, but obviously Steve did not go to see it. No. Leading on to our next movie, Can You Believe, Steve? Yes. Ten years ago this week, Paranormal Activity 3 was released. <sighs> Very likely. I've not even seen Paranormal Activity 1 or 2 or 4 or 27 or however many they're up to now. Other new ones coming out as well. So you've never seen a Paranormal Activity movie? No. Oh, I've, I've, I've seen them all. Go praise me. They just look like, oh, nothing, 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 cheap jump scare. It's like... Well, to, to be honest, some of them are actually really effective. Um, the first one is brilliant. This one's actually not that bad. I wasn't a fan of the second one. But this one, uh, it was directed by Henry Juiced and Ariel Schulman. And if you know their names, you might know them from Nerve. You might know them from the recent Netflix movie Project Power. What's the other thing you might remember them from, Steve? Juiced. Juiced in particular is sticking out in my head. J-O-O-S-T and Ariel Schulman. No, no, it's ringing a it's ringing a bell, but I'll be damned if I can pick it out of the ether. Catfish. Oh. Yeah. Now, now, this was the paranormal activity film that was uh, met with an incredible lot of backlash from fans because uh, it's the movie where the trailer had a majority of the scenes that didn't even appear in the finished movie. <laughs> so fans lost their shit. Apparently, 50% of that trailer was leftover footage that was never even put into the movie. And this this one is it's alright actually, Paranormal Activity Three. It's enjoyable. It's better than the second one, better than ones that came after it. Not as good as the first. Uh I found it was really directed well for a found footage movie. And I guess uh, the fans of the franchise did because this to date stands as the highest grossing paranormal activity movie out of all of them. Uh it holds records well it holds a record for uh the biggest midnight opening for a horror film, still to this day. Really? Well, even beating out stuff like Saw? Yes. And it's oh. also had the best opening day for a horror film in the United States. Oh, well, obviously. Yeah, it's doing something right then. That might have been outdone recently by Halloween Kills. That might actually be interesting because that's had a huge box office. I think it beat uh, No Time to Die, I think. But we... We said no time to die. It needed, what, 800, 900 million to break even? Something like that, yeah. I don't think it will. It no. might have by the time this episode airs. You never know. There's a lot of people who have gone to see it. No, I'm I'm reckoning that all these movies like uh, Black Widow, No Time to Die, and all these are the ones that were due to come out before the pandemic. They're not going to really make their money back in in the short term. In the long term, yes, they're going to be fine. But it's going to be all these kind of lower budget movies that are going to start to recoup their losses. I mean, even stuff like Halloween Kills, I know it's the budget for that isn't exactly, you know, modest. But because it's nowhere nowhere near as high as something like uh, No Time to Die, they're going to be making more money back on that. Easy, easy. Yeah, 
Definitely. Um, we've, we've got the new Paranormal Activity, which is either a, a soft reboot or a new direction for it. I'm not sure until mm -hmm. I see it. It's getting released straight to Paramount+, Plus, which is um, kind of weird for uh, a movie of the Paranormal Activity. That should have got, at least got a theatrical run. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they know what they're doing. I'm just me, you know. Yes. Even though I, I do love going to the cinemas, I am now a regular cinema visitor again. Because, um, well, there's, there's not that many people. It's great. <laughs> well, to be fair, I've not actually been back since. Um, I do wonder, what is it I want to go watch? I want to go and watch Encanto, the, the, the new Disney one. Well, I'm going to go and watch Ghostbusters Afterlife. I'm sure you're going to want to come with me because no one wants to go with me to see that either. <laughs> Let's see, shall we? <laughs> right, so what's next? That's it. That is all the anniversaries for this week. So I guess it's just time to bring our guest on. Well, today's guest, it gives me a great pleasure to introduce to the show. Uh, over the past decade, she's been a seeker of truth through some of the most engaging documentaries in American history. A legendary woman director in documentary filmmaking with two Academy Award wins, three Directors Guild of America Awards, three Sundance Awards, and 33 other award wins over an outstanding career. Her work has been selected for the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant, and her moving image collection is currently held at the Academy Archive. Over her career, she has directed, produced, edited, worked sound, camera, and many more hats through many pivotal moments in history, pushing the boundaries and even putting herself in danger to tell the story exactly how it is. Now, over the course of my career, I've met many women documentary filmmakers, including award winners, all the way to two young women I work with, Joanne Parker and Abby Kerwin. Hi, girls. Hi. And, hi. And most of them say the same thing. Barbara Koppel is the measuring stick when it comes to women documentary filmmakers. And it is a true pleasure to introduce Barbara Koppel all the way from New York City this morning. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. That's quite something to live up to. <laughs> well, no, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here. Uh, there is so much history associated with you for documentary filmmaking. And we've so much to talk about. We really want to hear your voice on so much stuff. But I feel we need to start with your uh, currently recently released project, Desert One. Okay. Uh, actually, it just showed on the History Channel two weeks ago. Oh, Perfect. So is that in the U.S. and internationally as well? I don't know whether they're showing it globally, but I hope they do. Well, oh, this is a documentary that takes an in-depth look at Operation Eagle Claw in 1980, which was an operation to rescue 52 embassy staff held captive in Tehran. And it's a story of tragedy and failure, but an incredibly engaging story, not just behind the mission, but also the the tension that was behind America and Iran at the time. Now, I recently just saw it on Now TV here in the UK over the past week. It is an amazing work. Uh, how long has it taken for you to tell this story? Uh, I think we worked on it for about two years. It was a film that is different from most of the films that I make, but it also sort of featured Jimmy Carter, uh, Vice President Mondale, Ted Koppel, a lot of people that everybody would know internationally. 
one of the men who, when I first spoke to him, his name was Colonel Gidry. He said Eagle Claw was the most audacious, difficult, complicated rescue mission ever attempted. It has been labeled a fiasco, a failure, a disaster, but it was a spark that created the mindset that we needed to build up special ops to bring it to where it is today. So that was his quote when I first talked to him. <laughs> that's a hell of a quote. It, it really is. But that's what really happened during the time. Also to the guys, because they were so humiliated about what happened on this mission, didn't really want to talk about this very much. So finally, when I was able to start filming them, it just started pouring out. I mean, these big Delta Force, strong military guys in tears over what had happened. Also, we filmed the 52, not all 52, but we filmed many of the hostages and really learned about, you know, how they survived and how they felt that they weren't the heroes, that the people who were the heroes were the people that were ready to sacrifice their life to do this very complicated mission to save them mm. and also too the mission was in total secret nobody could know what was happening so there wasn't even one photograph of it so we had wow. to use uh, animation we to depict the mission and the beauty of what happened is that it premiered at the toronto film festival when the men saw it they just said you got it. How did you do this? And it was, of course, through their stories. Also, Jimmy Carter was very hard to get. And I knew that I couldn't do this film without him. He, of course, was the president of the United States. And this was the worst thing that ever happened to him. And he didn't want to go in with military might. He wanted to go in and save people and use diplomacy and not allow these families who are waiting for their, you know, sons to come back to be in this kind of pain. So I kept calling and calling. Um, I had friends who was a speechwriter for Mondale when he was president, and also another friend who uh, was Jimmy Carter's campaign organizer. So I had a little help there, but they all told me that I had to call this guy named Phil Wise. And so I called, and of course, I would never get him. I'd call him at the Carter Center, and he would get on the phone and go, Howdy, this is Phil Wise, and I'm not in right now. And I decided <laughs> what I would do would be to have a relationship with his voicemail. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I called every three days or four days for three months, the poor guy, telling him, Oh, we shot this today, or this is happening and this is why we need President Carter so much and how are you doing? Do you have a family? You know, I would just talk into his <laughs> voicemail. Finally, one day my cell phone rings and the guy gets on and he goes, howdy, this is Phil Wise. <laughs> and I thought, I thought I was dreaming. And I said, yes, I would know that voice anywhere. He said, okay, Barbara, we decided we're going to let you film President Carter. It'll be on February 14th, which is Valentine's Day, and you'll only have 20 minutes. And I was so excited. So I went out, you know, 
about a few days before, bought the best chocolate I could find to give him. And I had been to South Sudan and Kate Taylor, who's James Taylor's um, sister when, you know, was teaching them how to bead as well as singing with them, the women there in South Sudan who had gone from north to south and had, you know, getting away from their slave masters to some sort of freedom. And so I bought one of the hearts, a red heart for the first lady, which was wonderful. But they told me I couldn't give it to him because that would take away from my time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I went and I filmed him and I got actually 19 minutes, 47 seconds. But <laughs> that's exact. Yeah. But it was wonderful. I mean, the things that he said were so moving and so beautiful. Um, one of the things I asked him was eight men died during this mission due to stupid failures of the Americans. Uh, a helicopter hit a C-130 and they both exploded. And so there were eight beautiful young men who were on there and they died. And I asked him about that. And he said that he was absolutely heartbroken that you know his father had died when he was younger, and he never thought that he would feel that kind of pain again. But when he heard about, you know, these guys, that kind of pain just rushed over him. I mean, he's such a decent, wonderful human being. Well, it's obvious that this was a very, very emotional project on many levels. Would you say it was one of the most emotional that you've undertaken? No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think a lot of the other films that I've done have been very emotional. So this is one of them, but in a different way than some of the others. Some of, most of the others, I lived with the people and were with them. And they were people who in their life were fighting maybe a mission in their personal lives that maybe they couldn't win, but they felt that it was the right thing to do. Well, as a filmmaker, uh, you are politically driven to some extent and obviously we've just pulled through one of the most volatile chapters of American political history I think it's safe to say uh, coming into Desert One obviously as you say you focus on the Carter presidency at the time of the mission but whilst you were making Desert One uh, during all of this time of political upheaval in the US did you have any concerns about highlighting a time when a president was advised to abort a plan and actually did in a time when a president was basically refusing to admit defeat? Well, what happened was, which was pretty interesting, is that they had made an agreement that if they had less than, I think, six helicopters functioning, they had eight altogether, that they would abort the mission because it was too dangerous. It had too many different moves to it. And that had been decided and because the mission it was murphy's law that if anything could go wrong of course it did go wrong yeah so what was really extraordinary though for for us is that we were able to uncover some audio tapes because it was total silence nobody could even say if their helicopter wasn't working because they had to keep things silent throughout but the generals would call 
President Carter on a satellite phone, a super secret satellite phone, and bring him up to date on what was happening. And that was audio that nobody had ever heard before. Wow. And it was pretty interesting what they were telling him and how he would respond to it. I mean, things like, well, there was a bus that, that came down and then there was a truck that had a lot of petroleum that came down. And, you know, this was in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere. And President Carter would say back, uh, did you have to pick such a busy highway? <laughs> but we learned so much. It was as if you were being there on almost on the edge of your chair to hear the reports and to hear him hearing them for the first time as to how things were going. Stepping uh, way back now, let's look at how you entered the world of filmmaking. And I don't think we're exaggerating when we talk about it being a totally different time for women back then. Uh, there's more equality uh, in the filmmaking world, and it's long overdue. Um, but when you started out, you were a rarity. And then you are also in the company of uh, Albert and David Mazers working on such projects as the legendary Gimme Shelter documentary about the Rolling Stones and Altamont. I was more of an intern um, doing everything that nobody else wanted to and did it with great joy and great zest. And, you know, every time I accomplished something and was able to do something like for their film salesman about four door-to-door Bible salesmen, they wanted the list from the um, Museum of Modern Art, the mailing list, so they could get people to come to the film. And that's never given out. And I just did it. And they were so shocked and so surprised. And I was so happy. And also Barbara Jarvis, who was an editor there, would teach me editing. And she would leave me chores to do. So I would do whatever they wanted me to do during the day and work at night, you know, reconstituting trims or putting lip syncing some of the work because it was all done in 16 millimeter. And also Gimme Shelter was really fun. Um, (laughs) I remember everybody went out to lunch and they left me guarding all the equipment in the backstage of Madison Square Garden. And I looked to my right and there was Mick Jagger standing there. (laughs) So I thought, what am I going to say to him? Um, and so I just said, well, I guess a lot of people are going to come tonight, right? <laughs> and he just looked at me and he said, yep, we're really looking forward to it. And then we got into an easier conversation. But that for me was very exciting. Um, and also, too, my job was to carry the magazines and the audio tapes that David Nelmazels would use and to also be part of a human tripod for Albert who got on the um, neck of <laughs> Sam Goldstein who was um, also a great sound technician but I was doing some sound too and my job was to hold hold the two of them up so he could get really big shots of um, the audience at Madison Square Garden. (laughs) So I don't think it was equality, but the equality that did come was every time they were doing a film, they would let everybody come and look at it and give their opinion. 
which is something I do too. I carried on that tradition in all my films. Everyone who works gets to come in and look at it and give their opinions of what they like, what they don't like, what works. We have, you know, a bullpen and everybody's there. And just on a mention on the Rolling Stones, uh, my producer, Brett, is currently producing the Rolling Stones on tour at this moment. Their first one without Charlie Watts. So there's a shout out to you, Brett. Yeah. Uh, Just going back here in 1972, you founded your company, Cabin Creek Films, which you still run today. And you immediately found your first calling in the form of the Appalachia Miners in Harlan County. For the next four years, you and your crew of three would document this Academy Award-winning movie, Harlan County, USA. For a young woman director, how did you suddenly find yourself in this environment where uh, the violent nature was growing? Uh, Well, I really wanted to do um, this film. And I started out, I was listening to NPR, which is public radio. And they were talking about how the former president, W.A. Tony Boyle, was very corrupt. And a new democratic reform union leadership was going to run throughout the coal fields and try to win. Boyle was found to be guilty, Tony Boyle, of the murder of Jock Yablonski, his wife and daughter, who also ran against Tony Boyle at an earlier time. So Arnold Miller took it on, and he was just an average coal miner, well as Mike Trebovich and Harry Patrick, and they all went around, and I started to meet people all over the coal fields, Nimrod Workman and his daughter Phyllis Boyens, who just sang so beautifully and really enmeshed myself into the culture, which I loved. Arnold Miller won. Tony Boyle went to jail. And Arnold Miller's first promise was to organize the unorganized. And in Harlan County, they were beginning to have a strike to be part of the United Mine Workers and have the union of their choice. And it was a very bitter history there since the 1930s where people died fighting for the right to have a union. So I came (laughs) with my motley crew (laughs) and um we went first to the organizers and they told me okay at 5 a.m in the morning you go down pine mountain and at the end of the mountain you'll see where the people are on the picket lines and so there i was um doing that and one the first morning it was pouring out and they didn't really have side rails along the mountains And so our car flipped over, another car passed us and we lost control and our car flipped over and we sort of got out of the car (laughs) and walked to the picket line. And it's a very small town. And so they started really opening up to us when the first time they saw us, they didn't, they lied about their names. They thought maybe we were hired by the company, even though we sort of looked like, you know, New York hippies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, from there life opened up we lived with the coal miners you know they protected us and I did have some extreme moments but you know I was young I was in my 20s you were invincible totally still invincible (laughs) well exactly how much hostility were you met with from both sides 
uh, just the first day from um, the mine, the miners' wives, but it really wasn't that much hostility. And even you know the gun thugs um, would let us go on their line and talk to them. But one day, they had told me that in the 60s, a camera person who was filming there, we were all called outsiders, was standing on somebody's lawn and the miner inside the house shot him. And so Basil Collins, who was the chief you know, foreman and also um, really against us, called me over to his truck and he asked me for my ID. And I did have a United Press ID. Um, and so I asked someone to get it for me, Ann Lewis. And then we started talking and he sort of let me interview him a little bit. And then I asked him for his ID and he said he thinks he might have lost it. So I said to him, well, I think I might have lost mine too. And um, he went, oh, okay. And he had a gun on the seat he was playing with because in Harlan County, you keep your guns you know, in full view. So he drove into the mine and all the miners and the women crowded around me. They said, he's gonna get you, he's gonna get you. And started telling me stories of other people who had been shot. Wow. Well, whilst many documentaries, I guess they kind of focus on the events unfolding and your work has always had this more element of individuals within the event as the focus. So when you were starting out as a, a documentary filmmaker and kind of seeking uh, funds or grants, was there more of an inclination to provide funding to document the events over the people involved in it? And would a pitch to focus on a people perspective, would that sometimes prevent funding from in institutions? Well, funding was so difficult for our film American Dream, um, Esther Cassidy and Peter Miller, did fundraising for us uh, from every church, everywhere you could imagine. And I think I have a whole box of rejections that I've kept all these years. One of them saying, we would rather fund trees because they don't talk back. Um, you know, the heat would go off. I would come back from a long shoot and it was a walk up after six o'clock and they would turn the heat off and I would feel sorry for myself and I would sing, you know, to myself, you can do it if you really try. It's always been difficult to raise money for documentaries. Well, today documentary filmmaking is huge and it's a major part of streaming services and uh, and indeed theatrical showings. Now, compared to your earlier works throughout the 70s and 80s, how much easier is it to get funding and attain the interest in documentary financing today? Uh, it's much easier now, but it's also hard on certain projects that are your passion projects. Um, but it, they call it the golden era of documentary now because so many people are doing them and they're so powerful. Um, I feel so lucky to be part of this community. Uh, funnily enough, I was having a, a conversation the other day through email uh, with a documentary producer by the name of Troy Nankin. And his movie, Introducing Selma Blair, has just been released this past Monday, uh -huh. which we were having conversations about. And straight away he came back to me, and uh, as soon as he heard that you were coming onto the show, he wanted to tell you that 
Harlan County, USA was one of his inspirations. He's a big fan of yours. So, well, tell him I look forward to seeing his film and, you know, anything I can do to help him, I'll be glad to. As documentarians, we all really help each other and try not to be competitive with each other because if one of us does well, it means everybody does well. And it's always been that way. I remember at the Academy Awards for Harlan County and for other films, they sat all the documentarians together. And when it was our time to be called, we crisscrossed our arms. And when they said Harlan County, I felt these two hands just pushing me up lightly to go up to the front. And, you know, for me, that was unbelievable. I could feel my heart beating inside the auditorium and Lillian Hellman gave me the award. Um, wow. Well, even, even wilder because the uh, Academy Museum, which has, you know, just opened, I think last month in LA and the whole history of film. And I went to see it and you know there are five floors i started on the fifth floor and i went all the way down you know each floor to the second floor and i was just shocked because there was a big picture of me on the wall um along with 20 other you know actresses and directors and whatever and when when it was the turn of the picture to say something, you could hear everybody's Academy Award speech and then it would rotate round and round. Mm. And I had no idea that that was there. So I was just, didn't want to leave the second (laughs) floor. And then they also had a lot of people's Oscars of which Harlan County was one and Harlan County, you know, when they came to pick it up, I thought they were just going to put it in a corner and show a few clips of the film or something like that. They they polished it. It was gleaming. And they encased it. And I didn't even recognize it. And it was right next to Sidney Portier's. Oh, so. God. Wow. <laughs> well, before we go any further, and I may never, ever get the chance to actually ask this of someone who has actually picked up one of those statuettes, what was that like stepping onto the stage and holding that thing in your hand, knowing that you, you were surrounded by basically everyone that is more or less the entirety of the Hollywood movie industry staring up at you? Well, it was it was sort of interesting because my distributor at the time, who was a great distributor, uh, Don Rugoff, um, and he distributed a lot of, you know, documentary films as well as other independent films, decided that I should not be allowed to enter the film for an Academy Award. So I had to, I went on my own um, with Hart Perry, who was um, the DP of the film. The two of us went together and we stayed in a motel that didn't have any food around it and we didn't have a car and I had to borrow a dress (laughs) and somebody (laughs) picked us up 
um, and a Volkswagen to bring us in. And we sort of like <laughs> walked in to the Academy Awards. And um, I just had no idea. I had never been to LA before of what this would mean or anything. Uh, and so when it happened and I was up there with Lillian Hellman, I mean, I was so proud and so honored, but particularly for those coal miners in Eastern Kentucky. And I called them afterwards and they were screaming and yelling to me on the phone, we won an Academy Award, we won an Academy Award. And they said they were driving around honking their horns and screaming oh, and yelling. And it was just the most wonderful thing ever. <laughs> Almost in a way, I wished I had been with them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can just picture it. That sounds incredible. No, it really was incredible. And I love the fact that you show up in an actual Volkswagen. <laughs> yeah, somebody dropped us off and we had to walk <laughs> for a bit. <laughs> with it being like winning that Academy Award so early in your filmmaking career, did you suddenly feel that there's this added pressure on whatever your next project was going to be now that this spotlight was thrown on you so unexpectedly? Uh, no, um, because I was still making documentaries. And at that time, you know, you'd get why as a little girl like you want to make this kind of film. So not too much had changed. The film that I made after that one you know, I did a lot of sound and editing on other people's films. And then I made another film called American Dream, which also won an Academy Award. And that was so hard to raise money. They were also, it was another union film and they were outside struggling, you know, to be part of the union. And of course they would go out on strike in the middle of the winter when it was 60 below with the wind chill factor. You know, I used to pray that our battery and the camera that it would freeze so we could sit in the car for a few minutes and get warm. I was doing sound at that point. So no, it wasn't easy. And the biggest one was I remember going in after I'd been out all night and Esther Cassidy calling me and saying, Barbara, we only have $250 left in the bank. What are you going to do? And I'm thinking, what do you mean, what am I going to do? I'm out here, I'm freezing, <laughs> you know, and trying to film what's happening. And then about two hours later, um, they said, okay, Barbara, your office is on the phone again. I said, no, 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 I don't want to speak to them. And they said, no, you have to. So I got on the phone and we had just gotten $25,000 from Bruce Springsteen for the film. Wow. So that, that's that, a name to that throw was, around. That was amazing. We had kept writing him and writing him, giving him three choices of things to do. Give us some money, give us a percentage of your, you know, concert or, you know, do a song for the movie. <laughs> so he gave us twenty five thousand dollars. And we were ever so grateful from two hundred and fifty to twenty five thousand. Well, the boss came through. Yes, yeah. he did. and he keeps coming through, I'm sure, for so many people. He's just a wonderful, wonderful human being. Uh, looking back with fresh eyes, what do you feel was the greatest success with American Dream, and why is it still important for people to find this movie to this day? 
Uh, well, it's sort of interesting because I just got an email yesterday about uh, a young woman who's doing a three-part piece on the economy. And what she's using is American Dream. And she's gone back to many of my characters to see who they are today and what they've accomplished. And she just wrote to me begging me to be able to use the audio for American Dream because that's what put her whole project together. So I guess people are still out there interested in it and caring about it. Definitely. So it's a great movie, it really is. Well, the American Dream led to your second Academy Award win for Best Documentary. Uh, well, with both the focus of Harlan County and American Dream's content, did you find that there was any reluctance towards your name from some corporations or maybe certain establishments due to you being very worker-centric? Yes. In fact, at <laughs> in American Dream, the local union people were very angry also at the union because they felt that they were fighting and that the union should have been supporting them more because the Hormel company that um, makes spam uh, cut their wages by about $5. And that made it very hard. And this was a place where generations of people worked. Your father worked, you know, your grandfather worked here, you work here. It was the only thing really in town other than, you know, restaurants and some farming. So it was it was a very tough film to make because uh, you also had to get inside to the kind of work that they were doing, which was, you know, slaughtering hogs. I was thinking of I was thinking of the slaughtering hogs and all I could think of was just reams and reams of pigs just hang up by their ankles, just being mulched exactly. into this pink slime which i've never been a fan of anyway no me neither but that's exactly what it was like and i'd always like wish that one of them would break away free <laughs> but it never happened i have some a, a disturbing uh, admission to make that one of my first jobs out of uh, school i actually worked in a bacon factory and my uh -huh. job was to actually clean the machines Oh. And I, I lasted two weeks, and I don't think I ever touched bacon again. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, yeah. And I, I, for that reason I can't watch these uh, documentaries. Like um, there's a couple that came out, like Food Inc. or Food yeah. Incorporated, and uh, there's one called Eating Animals. And I start to watch them, it's like I can't. I, I literally cannot watch these this stuff. Yeah. I'm sure they're amazing documentaries, but uh, I'm I'm just a big animal lover, so. Me too. But I mean, in this film, they were going up against, you know, the union and they were also going up against Hormel Foods. So it sort of gets back to, I guess, what a theme is of my films are, you know, people who are doing these incredible things in their lives, even though maybe everything is against them. But there's some great pulse inside them that wants them to continue on and they have great passion and they do it uh, i think that's something that they particularly the british actually no i think the americans as well can get behind is that the love of the underdog 
exactly. supporting the uh, the little guy against the David versus the Goliath kind of uh, kind of approach. I think that resonates with a lot of people. Yeah, that's exactly right. And even in another film that I did about um, Miss Sharon Jones, who's a soul singer. Yeah, she was trying to defy a serious pancreatic cancer diagnosis. And for me, that meant that she was doing something more heroic and interesting than I could even fathom. Because most people, as you said, the underdog or this is a lost cause. But they just do it because it's worth fighting for, no matter what the outcome's going to be. And Sharon Jones, you know, and the Dap Kings had been singing for a very long time. She's the lead singer. She's this absolutely amazingly wonderful, talented woman. And at the beginning of her, you know, career, she actually worked as a prison guard in Rikers Island for a little bit because she couldn't get work. And then she was doing weddings and she had her two backup singers who she then bought to the Dap Kings, Star and Sandra Williams. And she was amazing. I mean, I thought she was going to be fine. She had an operation called a Whipple. She entertained everybody while she was getting and they were getting chemo. And then she did her comeback. And for a year, she toured after that with the Dap Kings. And her first night, she was so scared. She was trembling backstage. And then as she sort of parted the curtain after being gone for a year with this terrible disease, she looked like a prize fighter, you know, just ready to go into the ring. And she gave it everything she had. And she, you know, forgot a couple of the verses and they helped her and the audience loved her. And it was it was very beautiful to be able to get to know Sharon, to work with her. Her voice was so phenomenal, her energy and her passion. It is It is a truly great documentary as well. I feel we're going to say that over every documentary we talk about at the moment, <laughs> but it's true. Uh, the one that I definitely wanted to bring up here uh, is, is one of my favorite documentaries, and it's the 2006 uh, movie Shut Up and Sing. Uh-huh. which uh, detailed uh, the Dixie Chicks, if you remember them, Steve. Mm-hmm, I do. Yep. Uh, They're now they... known as the Chicks. They got rid of the name Dixie. Yes. Well, they they faced, uh, at the time, intense public scrutiny during this time because the lead singer, Natalie Maines, while uh, in London on stage, uh, gave a, a criticism of the American president at the time, George Bush, uh, during the concert. Uh, saying that, and I'm paraphrasing, but they were ashamed that he was from Texas as well. Yes, because they didn't want the war in Iraq. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, and, and they don't want this the, war. Yeah, and, and the backlash that met with Natalie and the chicks as well. Uh, I think I think you could class it as one of the earliest forms of cancel culture gone extreme. Now, as yourself, you're a woman with very strong political beliefs, and no doubt you've encountered a lot of hate and threat by standing firm by them as a filmmaker over time. Uh, At this time, when Natalie was going through this during the film, were you able to kind of step from behind the camera and provide some assurance and comfort for Natalie during this time? She was getting death threats, she was getting political and corporate backlash, and 
open hostility towards her as well. Natalie Maines did not need any confidence. <laughs> <laughs> she does come Natalie, across a very confident person. And I co-directed that with my one of my best friends, Cecilia Peck. Um, and Natalie was totally strong. And what it really said to me, this film, is that, wow, friendship is so incredible. It really help me to understand what it means to have friends who will always have your back, will always stick together, no matter what hard situation you're going through. And that was what doing that film brought out most for me, that if I had friends like that, I would be the luckiest person in the world. Did it actually start out as more of a, um kind of a, a profile and a, a tour documentary, and then it kind of escalated into what it was uh, during? No. Um, we went to uh, their manager, Simon, and um, Cecilia and I, and we said, we love this group. We just want to do a film about them. And somebody else had filmed, you know, her first statement about President Bush that got them blacklisted. Um, and that hadn't quite happened yet when we went to Simon. And he said, oh, no, no, why would you want to film them? Nah. And so the minute that that statement was said, we went racing back to Simon. He said, okay, go do it. And so <laughs> we, <laughs> we knew we wanted to for so long because they were such impressive women. They were so bright and so together and so passionate and fostered the hardest times. And then at the end of it all, I think they got four or five um, Grammy nominations at the end, even though people blacklisted them and treated them poorly and had death threats and their singing and their lust for life was just too strong to keep them back or to let anyone hurt them. I do wonder what the backlash might have been in recent years with uh, with Donald Trump because there were a number of celebrities that were very, very vocal about um, his presidency. So I wonder if it would have had the same effect. Oh, I think Donald Trump couldn't hold a candle <laughs> to the chip. Oh no, they 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 steamroller all over him. They would they would love it. <laughs> they would never be afraid. <laughs> we need a sequel. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh well, uh the movie was met with uh, multiple refusals from networks such as um NBC and uh, CW to wear any form of promotion for it, uh, including general ads. And now as this was not covered in the documentary and the reasoning was proclaimed to be that the content didn't match any appropriate programming or that the channel had a policy of not promoting programming dealing with public controversy. Now, in your view, Barbara, was this a move to damage your movie or was this just them trying to distance themselves from it? I think it was just their loss, hmm. their stupidity and their loss. And, um, you know, Miramax distributed the film. So it showed in theaters everywhere. Yes. I think so as well, because I think we certainly with something like this, and it was a very, probably was one of the most politically charged times before 2016. Yeah, but you can't so. let 
you know, somebody who's afraid for their job get you down, you know, in later years, they'll come to regret some of the things that they did. You just have to keep moving on. Exactly. As a filmmaker, what do you feel are the greatest strengths that women uh, filmmakers provide, especially in the world of documentary filmmaking? Oh, yeah. I think women really support each other and really help each other, mentor each other, look at each other's work, want each other to succeed tremendously. Um, and that's a real force. And I also think that we can get away with a lot more, you know, having the female gaze, like I did a film on Mike Tyson. And if you're a guy and you're doing a film unboxing, you know, you're supposed to know stuff. So you can't ask, you know, sort of emotional or empathetic questions. And I could, and they figured she doesn't know anything about boxing, so we'll try and help her out. So I think as a woman, you get away with a lot more. You can ask things, you can, you know, do things that men aren't expected to do. Do you think that that then bleeds onto uh, the viewer's experience as well? So, for example, I, I know nothing about boxing. So if, if you're there being able to get all this information directly from them, do you feel that that helps the viewer? Oh, of course, because you get people to really dig deep and tell you the things that they're really thinking. These very big, powerful guys who ordinarily wouldn't tell that to, to anyone. One of the reporters with in talking about Tyson said that, you know, Tyson was so sad with all the things that were happening to him that he just put his arms around this reporter and cried and cried on his shoulder. And the reporter told me he had never told that to anybody else. He said it was just, he just couldn't even believe it. He didn't know how to process it. Wow. That's a really interesting uh, note to take in because I don't think with... Um... A lot of male documentary makers, especially people, Michael Moore, you know, approaches it with uh, a lot of humor. Uh, yes. A lot of um, uh, women directors, like uh, the few that I know in, in Lucy Walker, uh, especially. Yes. She approaches with a very kind of emphatic delivery in her documentaries. I think that Michael is absolutely extraordinary he's made himself a brand he's wicked smart yeah and his films are always a delight to watch no matter whose Super feathers fearless. he's ruffling and lucy is this gorgeous woman who was a model and has picked films that are so extraordinarily interesting and and they're both totally different in their styles we all are definitely and and lucy was a, a fantastic help for me when i was first getting my feet wet into taking the director's chair she gave me a hell of a lot of advice and i know lucy's going to be listening so hello lucy and thank you very much yes hello lucy and we all love you I love this. I really do. There's so there is no there. There such is a so, love fest. It comes across very, very clearly. There is such respect that coming across from you and around the documentary community, and it doesn't really seem like that's the way it is all the time in, say, we say, traditional movie making. And it's actually quite refreshing to to hear someone that's uh, that's not bashing someone or 
or trying to make themselves the top of a pile. It, it, I like it. Well, I think that a lot of what we do as documentarians is um, it's a collaborative process. And documentaries, you know, once you get your film into the editing room, there's nothing tighter than the director and the editor. They're sort of like interwoven with each other. The director has been there on the ground and the editor is the first person to really be looking at this material. And so there has to be a huge amount of trust between them. And we just enjoy collaborating with each other. I think when you really look at it as well, I mean, narrative films, it always seems that everyone is just trying to kind of, I guess, lay ownership, you know, and be the person in the spotlight. And with the documentary, it's all about the truth. I think that's the best way to put it. Mm. You know, it's about the people involved are actually looking there to uncover the truth or present the truth. And I think there's a very huge gulf of difference between, you know, these two styles of filmmaking. Would you agree? I also think that, yes, there's a difference in the two styles of filmmaking. And I've made some fiction films and done fiction TV and had the good luck of having an incredible team. But no matter what kind of film you're doing, no one, not anyone, can do it fully on one's own. Um, we all have to work with everyone, whether it's on set with a fiction film, with, you know, wardrobe and stylists and DPs and, and the same the same with um, documentaries. You know, you're a tight-knit little crew and, and your persuasion is really those characters, bringing the best out of them, allowing them to bloom, allowing them to be the people that they are. I was just interested in knowing, obviously, uh, in, in kind of like discussing what differences they are, do you approach a pitch uh, differently that for a documentary than there would be for, say, a movie? So with um, a movie, you'll have everything from, you know, animatronic storyboards, et cetera, et cetera, all to kind of go in and, and pitch this vision. And for a documentary, is there a major difference in the way that you walk into a room and what you present? Well, in a documentary... If it's not shot already, you don't know what's going to be around each corner. You don't know what's going to happen. You know, all the research, all the ideas, everything that you've put together, once you're on location, you just throw them out because real life happens and it takes over. With a fiction film, you know, the script is there and you can talk about the characters and you can talk about what's happening. It's, it's much different. It's much harder, but yeah. also it costs a lot less to make documentaries <laughs> than it does to make features. So people might be more inclined to help you out. While you've been making all these incredible movies, um, like you were just saying that life happens, has something happened on a shoot that has completely changed the direction of the movie that you were trying to make? Um, always, because I never go there thinking this is the movie I want to make. I go there because I know there's a crisis or something is happening and I want to see how these people endure it, how they challenge it, how they fight with it. If they lose what that means for them, like an American dream, 
almost all the people lost their jobs. And if they did go back to work, it was for half the amount. Mm. So I, I go there and I'm open. You know, people that I thought maybe were going to be the, the main characters aren't always. You just go and embed yourself in somebody's community and film life happening. So in doing that, how do you kind of know? Because obviously I'm, I'm not a documentary filmmaker. But well, how do you... <laughs> we're going to make you one. <laughs> we I hope need so. you. <laughs> how do you know when you have the story? You know, obviously, you, if you've been shooting, say, like for Harlan County, you'd been down there all that time. You were shooting everything. When do you know you've got enough to make that movie? Or, or if events are still going on, do you extend or do you just make a decision like, OK, we've got enough here to make a movie? Well, in Harlan County, for example, everybody thought that I was going to stop when they got the right to have a union, a coal miner was killed by a company foreman and that's what ended the strike and he left a 16 year old wife and a young baby so it was very dramatic but they were still getting the right to vote for the very first time on the the bigger contract to improve their wages and vacation and working conditions and so i'm the last 10 minutes or so of the film is that struggle and they lost the right to strike in that struggle and the quote from the film is coal miners will always keep struggling so i went on a little bit with that much to the dilemma of you know the people i was working with oh you can't do that it's over now no it's not i just want to do this last thing <laughs> <laughs> well in that case speaking of that i mean harlan county usa because came out in 1976 which is uh, which is quite Seven. a while oh is it 77 yeah oh i do apologize yeah i imdb lies um <laughs> but um but are you ever tempted to to go back and revisit the the subjects of your previous movies well, I always fantasize about it. I mean, Harlan County was just on uh, Turner Classic Movies Friday mm -hmm. night. So they keep replaying it, and I feel so happy that they do. But I've been getting calls from the children or the grandchildren of the coal miners in Harlan. So that's been pretty interesting, seeing what became of their parents and what they're doing. And so in a way you're always detached. Um, after Harlan County, um, one of the characters died. Her name was Sudie Cruisenberry and she was in the women's group. And she said, I'm not after a man, I'm after a contract. Cause all the women were bickering with each other. Like you're an alcoholic and you're taking so-and-so's husband. And she finally had to just say, no, I'm not after a man, I'm after a contract. And so she died and they wanted me to get there so that I could give the eulogy. But I couldn't because I was pretty far away. And so I guess I did a written eulogy that somebody read. So in a way, like with old friends or people that you consider have become a new family, when you're with those people again, it's like you're just taking off again winter soldier 
people, some of the Vietnam vets still call me. Um, and we talk about what's happening in the world. So you make very, very close alliances with these people because you live with them through one of the hardest times of their lives or one of the most happiest times of their lives. I can imagine. Uh, I can't even follow that, Steve. I think it's your question anyway. Yeah, well, uh, finally, on a lighter note, uh, the world of cinema is rife with not just documentaries, but also mockumentaries on various subjects from rock stars to vampires. Um, I wrote one about a supervillain. So, uh, oh, cool. uh, but have you seen many of these and what does an actual documentarian like yourself feel about them? Well, I'm going to turn the table to you and uh, ask you about that film. Oh, um, okay. Wasn't expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> That's always fun. <laughs> Um, it, it, yeah, it's a, it's about a guy that wants to be a James Bond-style supervillain, and he's uh, constantly up against bureaucracy and ineptitude. And what happened? Oh, that'd be giving the end away, wouldn't it? Um, or titillate <laughs> us a little more. Yes. Come on. You, you must have got this to pitch level at some point, Steve. Come on. Uh, uh, well, I want to know. To, okay, okay, yeah, it's about it's about a guy who's an ordinary guy, he's an accountant, he's always had this childhood dream of becoming a like a James Bond style supervillain with a white cat and a um, volcano hideout, and and he he tries to like get the correct permits. He he has to like make sure that he doesn't have the same kind of color jumpsuits as the other supervillains if he's trying to. Yeah plan a robbery or something he has to uh put in a request ahead of time to make sure no one else is doing the same thing he hires a bunch of uh idiots and ragtag people because that's all he can afford who camp out in his back garden he's using the kids climbing equipment for their assault course and it's just kind of following him as it goes on to try and see just how far through he can get so yeah, I'm sorry. I really wasn't expecting this to be turned back on me today. That's great because you have sort of described what mockumentaries are about, and it sounds like a lot of fun. And because of that, I'm going to start looking at them. In that case, start with What We Do in the Shadows. It's a New Zealand film uh, made by Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clement. And it's about a group of vampires that are sharing a house, and I think he's Possibly one of the most hilarious films that I've ever seen. Oh, I think that sounds great. I'm excited to look at it. And yours. There you go. So now you've got to go and make it, Steve. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Fight that infamous uh, English roadblock of trying to get a movie done nowadays. No, you make movies. I just sit here and uh, and talk about them. We, we all did it at one point. I feel so embarrassed right now, and I don't know why. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I just wasn't. I just wasn't expecting that. But isn't that more fun to do something that you don't expect? I uh, yeah, I guess so. I'm not looking forward to editing this section, but yeah. See, now well. you know how I felt when I had to do my director's vision video a couple of weeks back. And I was like, oh, people are asking me questions about my own project. <laughs> and and I don't even like being on camera. Well, say a little bit about it. I mean, everybody else is talking about it. Oh, God. Well, this would have to be edited out. I'd get in trouble. <laughs> for, well, for go for it. You can edit it out if you don't want it. 
Yeah, certainly. Okay, well, mine is a... But I had to sit there and talk about it, <laughs> and it was like, wow, I've, I've never been so unprepared to sit in front of a camera. <laughs> oh, but you were talking about something that you deeply cared about. Oh, yeah, it was fine. As, as soon as I saw the first lot of footage, I was like, there is no way that is what we are using. Let me sit down and do it again. So I kind of directed myself on the second one to be more upbeat. And, uh, it actually worked. They've done an amazing job. And Joanne Parker is a huge fan of yours. And she's going to be listening in, so. Well, we'll give applause to Joanne. Good. There you go. Um, oh, so, gonna, I mean, I guess we're getting me. back to the whole idea of collaboration. And whether that's the producers, the directors, the sound recordists. I've been lucky enough to work with a producer named Dave Cassidy for maybe 17 years. And... That's so wonderful to have somebody who knows me so well. So out there, it's a lot of different people that make these films happen. And you only do it by working together. Mm. Yeah, that is a very good point. And with that in mind, I guess we want to hear what your Nominate 5 would be. Now's the time to Nominate 5. Nominate 5? Yes, Nominate 5. And there goes the sterling reputation we've had for the last hour with Barbara. Yes. <laughs> You're just going to go away and think, who are these people? <laughs> no, I love these people. <laughs> I'm looking forward to doing a podcast with the two of you. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that'd be okay. interesting. I am not nominating five. I am, okay. I am well, feeling that there are so many wonderful, wonderful filmmakers out there that they all become like your children or your family. Ah, well, that's good, Barbara, because we're not asking you to nominate any five filmmakers. Because okay. As more and more uh, women are turning to documentary filmmaking, as we mentioned earlier, and it's a doorway that you've been very instrumental in opening wide. Uh, today, many women actively seek to become directors in the genre and working their way through the various fields such as you, you have. So for the Nominate 5, we just wanted to ask you five top pieces of advice or wisdom that you would pass on to these women about to enter into the world of documentary filmmaking, fight for their place in the business, working towards truth in the work, and what you would want them to take with them moving forwards. Oh, dear. Okay. That way, we're not I highlighting think... any directors. Okay. I think uh, passion of the subject and really being able to understand it, to pick a team that has your back and will support you, not to let anyone tell you that you can't do something and learn as much as you can so you feel very confident in what you're doing. Uh, if you talk about your project, others will help you and help you get it done and to believe in yourself. I think that last one's probably the most important, really. 
Because if you don't believe in yourself, then who will? Right. Yeah. Well, Barbara, listen, it has been absolutely amazing having you on the show. You've made us feel so welcome in welcoming you. And uh, it's it's just a pleasure to have someone of your caliber on. And I'd love to know, I mean, what have we got coming up from Barbara Couple? Anything you can tell us about? Yeah, we're in editing on a film on civil rights, uh, nice. which we started filming in 2018 and then went through the whole COVID area. And it's about two extraordinary leaders, Mark Morial, his father was the first black mayor of New Orleans, and he's was the second, and he's now head of an organization that is very, very widespread. And Janet Margia, who worked with the Clintons, um, and now she is in charge of a very big and powerful organization. And the two of them have come together to end voter suppression, to end discrimination, and to try from above to get legislation done. And that's what it's about. <laughs> wow, fantastic. So when, when will we hopefully be looking to see this film uh, kind of hit whatever platform or anything? Do you have a, an estimated date? Uh, we don't now. We're in editing. Um, oh, okay. So we will let you know when that wonderful day comes. Well, and we will promote it heartily. You, yes. you are a friend of Partywood. You are always welcome to come on and have a chat with us and promote whenever time you want. Oh, yes, you guys indeed. are wonderful. And it's been really fun for me to be on with you. And thank you. It has been so much of a pleasure to have you here and talk about your career. It really has. And uh, give, a, give a big hug to Esther for me as well. <laughs> I certainly will. Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming. Uh, we look forward to seeing all of your work and all of your films that are there to be rediscovered by an entire new generation of documentary filmmakers. Go and check them out. Find them. Uh, Desert One is currently on Now TV here in the UK, mm -hmm. uh, which you can find. It is definitely worth a watch. And yeah, let us know your thoughts. And Barbara, we wish you all the best and bring home statue number three. All right. I will try. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What is in that box? Well, there's only one way to find out. And what's going to happen now is that Andy is going to plunge his hand into a box full of movie titles that are all certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. If he pulls out the name of a film that I haven't seen, then I have to go away and I have to watch that movie before we record our next episode. And if I have seen it, then he has to keep pulling out names of a movie until we find one that I haven't seen. I'm sure we'll exhaust all of 2007's movies while doing it. Yes, we will. So that's basically that. I thought I'd get the introduction out of the way so we can just get on with this with this whole thing and then we can finally get to the pub. Yes. Okay, you ready for your What's in the Box this week? I'm always ready for my What's in the Box. Okay, first one. Walt Disney's Pinocchio. Seen it. I thought you would have. Okay, it's a good job I picked another one up. Yes. Oh, Dennis Hopper's 1988 movie, Colours. Ah, no, oh, no, no. 
Ah, good. So we get to talk about um, street gangs in the 1980s and the police. And amazingly enough, this uh, is still relevant today. So you'll enjoy that movie. It's a really good one, actually. Ooh, I do like a nice police drama. Good. You'll enjoy it. Sean Penn, Robert Duvall, and uh, I think Wesley Snipes has a bit of a role in it as well. Although, oh, the name Sean Penn. Now, that is also another name which doesn't go down too well. Because ever since uh, Amanda, she's my uh, she's my partner, hello. Uh, ever since she saw him in Casualties of War, she's she's not been much of a fan. Ah, well, I'm sure this will completely <laughs> repair her opinion of Sean Penn. But yes, uh, so next week, prior to our next guest, you will hear the story of Colours by yes. Steve. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. It's pretty good. <laughs> the story of Colours by Steve, age 42 <laughs> and one quarter. <laughs> Actually, it's not even that in one month, basically, isn't it? Yeah. Right, yeah. let's wrap this up and get to the bar. Yes, so for now, it's a goodbye from me. And it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.